What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> ECW World Heavyweight Champion. The ECW. When you want to load down the professional wrestling, come right here to the two-man power trip of wrestling. You'll get all the load down. <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the, on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. It just You said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. but Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's, uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Jerry Lawler and demanded that he come to this TV studio today because in front of Memphis, in front of everybody here, I will confront Jerry Lawler. I will tell Jerry Lawler exactly what I think of him, and if it has to be settled physically, I am prepared. Oh, come on, Randy. Now, you don't want to get involved in that kind of stuff. Not against Jerry Lawler. What did you say? I have, demanded, I have demanded that Jerry Lawler come here today. He should be here. I'm waiting for him, and I will be right out here quick. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by our good friends over at Meowbox. Meowbox is a monthly cat subscription box service full of surprises and delivered to your door every single month. And please be sure to stay tuned, as you always do, because it's right before the interview, a little bit later on in the show for a special promotion just for our listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling, courtesy of our friends over at Meowbox and Meowbox.com. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime John Paz. And John, recently we've been asking with a couple of these guests that we've had on, who is somebody that you'd like to see of a similar ilk? Somebody who is from the same genre, from the same territory, and possibly from the same company. And there's no better people to start with than our friends in the Memphis wrestling territory. And if you listen to this show, you know that our interviews are very, very heavily based 
around that Memphis wrestling territory and some of the luminaries from the longtime history of Memphis wrestling have joined the program. And with Bill Dundee and Lance Russell, we've been asking who's somebody else that you want to hear on the show. And we went out and we got Randy Hales to come on the program. And of course, if you're a fan of Memphis wrestling, you know that Randy Hales, he's also a very big fan of Memphis wrestling and Memphis wrestling historian as well as a participant in some of the finer moments in the longtime illustrious history of Memphis wrestling and its many incarnations and promotions that have highlighted a, uh, a portion of the country that I know we kind of have a little joking divide back and forth between uh, us Yankees up in the north and uh, down in uh, Memphis, the folk down there. But you know what? Randy Hales came on and he gave us some amazing stuff. And as in typical two-man power to professionally fashion, we weren't even able to cover the whole entire career of Randy Hales because if you listen to our show, you know that sometimes these interviews get very extensive. But this is definitely a part one. But, John, tell us some of the highlights that we have to look forward to in this edition with Randy Hales and maybe a couple of the highlights that really stick out to you about his career. Yes, Chad. Back here again at the two-man power trip of wrestling with Memphis royalty, Randy Hales. He's done it all in the business. He's done it all, especially in Memphis. Made a huge mark in that territory. Made a huge name for himself there. As a booker, a manager, a promoter, announcer, sometimes even a wrestler, he has literally done it all down there in Memphis, Tennessee. So just awesome to be able to talk to him about Memphis and the glory days of Memphis and all the amazing storylines, feuds, wrestlers, you name it, that came out of Memphis. Just great stuff. I love talking to him about Jerry the King Lawler, who obviously is the king of Memphis, Tennessee. Love talking to him about his mentor, Jerry Jarrett. So many great tales, so many great stories, and he's so eccentric. He's so passionate about the wrestling business. You could tell that he just loves the wrestling business. And, of course, you know, he was a big fan before getting into the business. And then his, you know, fandom became a reality as he became a part of the business and a very big part of the business. And he ended up doing so, so much down there in Memphis, Tennessee, and so much in the wrestling business, and he's still promoting today. So, I mean, obviously, listen to the interview, check out that where he's, you know, it's still promoting today and still becoming a force in the wrestling business. But I have to stress this: this is just part one with Randy Hales. So expect more from him in the future. Yeah, exactly. It comes to a little bit of an abrupt end, but uh, stick with us. He will be back, and uh, you'll hear in his final answer. He goes right into his plugs, and then we get uh, we wrap up the show, but uh, a definite part one. There's still so much I wanted to ask him about. We were just talking about getting into that later half of the Power Pro days, and uh, really I was going to start digging into some of the um, talent that was in Power Pro because it's a hell of a list if you think about some of the uh, the cool legends that were there mixed with a lot of the young talent that we've gotten to know and really gotten to appreciate, including our, our boy, 
uh, Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Kevin Fertig. He's uh, a Power Pro uh, alum himself, and I've heard many a stories about Power Pro and how it was as a territory, so it was kind of a shame that we didn't get to get to that in part one, but we definitely will cover it in part two. But how about the fact that there's an electrifying guy who had a stop in Memphis early in his career who paid a lot of respect to Randy Hales, and it was a great story towards the tail end of the talk that uh, I really loved because you see the human side of somebody who is built like a rock, and I think you might know who I'm talking about if you smell what Chad is cooking. Yeah, Chad, you know one thing that really, really stood out to me was you know besides the awesome Jerry Lawler stuff, USWA stuff, some CWA stuff mixed in there, some Jerry Jarrett stuff mixed there, some Power Pro, all things Memphis one thing that really stuck out to me was his rock story. He had a great story about the rock Dwayne Johnson. And as you know, a lot of people should know, or maybe you don't, but you really should. Rock got his start as Flex Kavanaugh. And, you know, really was the start of his career before he was really the rock. And he really was trying to make an imprint. And Randy Hales was great to him. He helped him a lot. He was his mentor. He uh, teached him a lot as his booker so randy really just tells a fantastic story not about just the rock coming up in the business but he also tells a great story about seeing the rock backstage at a show recently and the rock being great to him and the rock was very appreciative of how nice and how great randy was to him when he was coming up in the business and randy tells a great little funny story about that and and you know they have some uh inside lingo if you will some uh some inside talk that they said to each other which is great so the Rock remembered Randy. Of course, Randy remembered The Rock, but it was just great to see and just awesome to hear that The Rock was being so respectful and really remembering his roots and just loving Randy Hales and loving his time down there in Memphis, Tennessee, in the USWA. So just stick around and listen to that great story because that's one of the best stories on top of all the other legendary Memphis stuff. And he's so passionate. He's so great. We get into feuds. And he just goes on on a great story about each one. So you're really, really going to look forward to this one. I yeah, I have to say this is a great interview, and I will say it once again. This is only part one. Definitely. I'm going to piggyback on the passion line, and his passion is unparalleled, and his knowledge is definitely uh, very, uh, very much in a class by itself when you talk about the history of Memphis and some of his analysis on the feuds of guys like Jerry Lawler and uh, Dundee. It's just, it's literally firsthand, first account information from somebody who was there through it all as a fan in the office and definitely taking part wherever he could. And we really hope you enjoy Randy Hales. It was a really fun, fun chat. And that's what we love doing here. Sometimes it's cool to be serious and you get some of those uh, real juicy and in-depth talks where we hear some crazy stuff flying out. But then you get ones like this where, you know what, you got to sit and listen and you're going to hear some great stories coming your way. And in the next couple of weeks, are you going to hear some crazy stories and some crazy interviews with some of our biggest names to date on the two-man power trip of wrestling. And as we trudge away towards episode 175, next week, Friday the 13th, a very fitting guest will be joining the program for a day like Friday the 13th and episode 175 being on that day as well. So we really hope you look forward to that. Of course, we'll be dropping teasers via YouTube, via Twitter, 
And please keep those cards and letters safely coming in. We love to hear from you. And anybody who wants to hit us up, just do so by the plugs that Mr. Primetime is going to throw your way in just a minute. But with that being said, Primetime, tell them a little bit more about our friends over at Meowbox. Tell them about the Power Trip 10 code and how it's taking over the subscription box service world. That's right. When you use that Power Trip 10 code, you're going to get 10% off your first box subscription, courtesy of Meowbox. But prime time, tell them a little bit more about that. Hit them with a little two man Power Trip of wrestling business and get them on over to Randy Hales. Yes, Meowbox is back. Not only is your Meowbox personalized by hand with your cat's name written on the inside of the box, all of the edible items are made in Canada or the USA so you know where all your ingredients are coming from. Also, they have a program, it's a giving program, it's called One Box Can. With every Meowbox purchase, they donate a can of food to a shelter cat on your behalf. Also, and most importantly to me, for picky cats like mine, my cat is Lucy, who has a very special diet, we offer to receive meow boxes with absolutely no edible items. They actually replace food and treats with more toys and more surprises. So that's meowbox.com. Please enter promo code POWERTRIP10 and receive 10% off your first subscription. Again, it's meowbox.com. Enter the promo code POWERTRIP10. And now for some TMPT business, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. We are releasing the latest and greatest clips. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on there, please check out the feed for prior great episodes with the late American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Jesse the Body Ventura, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, the phenomenal AJ Styles, the Demon. Glenn Kane Jacobs, The Lunatic Fringe, Dean Ambrose, Stan the Laird Hansen, and many, many more. Also, please check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. You can now check us out on Google Play, as well as Player FM and the i95 Sports Network. For any bookings, please hit up our email, bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com for any of your booking needs. Also, check out our store on prowrestlingtees.com. It is new and it is awesome. So please check it out as prowrestlingtees.com. Also, while you're there, check out the Kevin Thorne page as well as the Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff page and the coming soon, the Buff Bagwell page. So please check that out on prowrestlingtees.com. And now, without any further ado, he's a booker, a promoter, a manager, and most importantly, he is Memphis royalty. He is Randy Hales. Please enjoy. on the line tonight is somebody very familiar to the classic Memphis wrestling fans. 
I'd like to call him a jack-of-all-trades because we've seen him do it all and kind of act it all out on television, and that is the great Randy Hales. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, John. Hey, Chad. Good to be here. I wish I was where you were at in New York City. That'd be cool. <laughs> you know, it's kind of... You know, it's funny, uh, for two guys up in the north like John and myself, uh, as wrestling fans, we almost want to say that we'd rather be down in Memphis because it seems like since day one, since we started this show, everything always comes back to Memphis wrestling. And when we get requests for guests and we solicit people say, hey, who would you like to hear on the show? Everybody comes back and says, get somebody to talk Memphis wrestling. And we've got a checklist. And you're up on that checklist, and we're just we're happy to have you on today. But the first question I'd love to ask you is, what is it about Memphis wrestling that really just get, grabs the wrestling fan, north, south, east, or west, that makes them want to know or see something having to do with Memphis wrestling? Well, I think you would have to say the, the glory days of uh, Memphis wrestling goes back longer than probably both of you guys have been alive. But I would say... Uh, around 1970 to, uh, I consider the last of the major run about 97. So 70 to 97, about 30 years. I think it was a, a product built on excitement. It was more of a, a brawling uh, style. It was just a combination of a lot of things, a lot of great talent, and a lot of the talent that started young and then it ended up going to the uh, major companies you know i think it, the, the style was basically based on believability uh the goal was for the treat it as an athletic event a real sport and uh and to have people uh go out there uh and make the people believe jerry jarrett says a great line in the uh, in the movie memphis heat Memphis Heat is a documentary. Have you guys watched Memphis Heat? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, great documentary. It premiered about five years ago, and this past Thursday night, they had the re-premiere five years later at the Malco Theater in Memphis. I was there along with Bill Dundee, or with Bill Dundee. Dave Brown was there, and Jerry Jarrett was there. And I hadn't watched the movie in of five years, but one of the lines Jerry Jarrett says, and it's so it basically sums up the success of the company is that he said that out of ten and eleven, twelve thousand people in that building, when people came through that door and bought their ticket, probably a thousand people at the most believed they were paying to see something real. A thousand out of the twelve thousand, maybe a thousand, but. By the time that main event was over, we were able, through great talent, to make them believe with great storytelling, great booking the whole uh, thing, 12,000 people walked out of the building believing what they saw was a fight, believing what they saw was real. And I think that's the key to the success of Memphis Wrestling. Yeah, that, oh, 100%, and that's uh, excellently said. And Memphis Heat, just to dial it back to that, is probably, if not the greatest full-fledged documentary about a territory 
that you could possibly find. And the fact that five years have gone by already with that documentary being out is, uh, is kind of unbelievable. But what we kind of love about Memphis and being from the north is that believability and is the pandemonium of some of the crowds in Memphis. And, you know, we've talked to, you name it. I mean, you know, we talked to Jim Cornette. We talked to Jerry Jarrett. We talked to Bill Dundee. And we even talked to Bob Zamuda about the whole Andy Kaufman situation. And the one thing that they all hammer home is that crowd and really believing that you have them in the palm of your hands and that you can really do anything you want with them. But you yourself, starting off as a fan and getting into the business, what was it that drew you to wrestling when you first – I know you got in at an early age, but what drew you to wrestling originally, uh, especially growing up down south? Well, I would, uh, I would also have to add in, in there that uh, the, the fan situation happened to a lot of us. Jerry Lawler went with his dad to the matches at the old Ellis Auditorium before the Mid-South Coliseum was open. Jerry Jarrett became a fan first while his mother – Oh, was selling tickets and working in the office for Nick Goulas. Jimmy Cornette became a wrestling fan and then became acquainted with Christine uh, Jarrett. It was just uh, what got me hooked immediately. just accidentally saw the TV in uh, about 1970, so I was eight or nine years old. And I can tell you right now, this I can't tell you the last thing I watched on TV. No clue the what the last thing I watched on TV, but I can tell you that very first uh, wrestling show exactly what it was, and it was uh, Jackie Fargo and Al Green, and uh, Al Green was talking about uh, Al, Jackie Fargo's dead daddy, uh, and uh, called the Fargo a coward, and finally Fargo. Uh, agreed to put his hair on the line in one of the most famous matches in the history of the building and the first ever sellout at the Mid-South Coliseum. And I was I was hooked from uh, then on. Don and Al Green was, was scary. And, and because I started before, um, two or three years before Jerry Lawler became a factor, but we had Jerry Jerry and Tojo Yamamoto, Eddie Marlin, Tommy Gilbert, Devon Bronners, the interns, Lynn Rossi, Bearcat, Brown, just a, just great, uh, great talent, and, and it had the local feel. And I think what was important back then, I could get up and watch at the time Channel Thirteen Wrestling before it moved to Channel Five. Watch that on Saturdays from eleven to twelve thirty, and because it was the territory, you could hear them announce that tonight, eight o'clock in Jonesboro at the American Legion Arena. Jerry Lawler or Jackie Fargo or whoever will be there, and you can watch on TV, and you could go every week and see what's next. You can see the continuation of the story because it's just you, you guys have to remember it just wasn't Memphis. You, you know, it was the surrounding towns and the the four or five state area, and, and but just locally where I live and where I am right now, as a matter of in Jonesboro. Uh, you could see the stars, the big stars from Memphis TV, and then seven, eight hours later, you could go see them in your hometown. And it was a big deal to see TV stars locally. Yeah, that that loop that we always hear about of going to different cities uh, for the Memphis crew, is uh, that's another thing of legend. And it's like, 
you know, again, back to us being from the north, it's just we have those little towns that you hit, but it's so cool to hear, oh, I was driving out to Evansville, or I was driving to Jonesboro. Those those have become just as legendary as some of the feuds. But, of course, you can't talk about Memphis wrestling without talking about Jerry Jarrett, who on our show we had an extensive, extensive interview with Jerry Jarrett dating back to as far as he could remember about pro wrestling. But talk about Jerry Jarrett's influence on your career and how much he really does mean to you from getting back in way back when. Well, actually, his father-in-law, Eddie Marlin, was the promoter in Jonesboro. So he gave me uh, my uh, my first break, made me a ring announcer at age 14 in Jonesboro. And Jerry didn't come a lot to the Jonesboro matches, very, very uh, rarely. And then uh, when I started in uh, around uh, 1980 after high school and I was in college and started doing a lot more of the towns, I'd see him on uh, – of Monday, Monday nights, um, I was, uh, my first full-time office gig was, was a, probably a, a year and a half, two-year period that he wasn't booking at all, and you never saw him. Jerry Lawler is the one that hired me as his, uh, assistant, so on the learning, uh, uh, curve, uh, there, uh, that was real, and, Important, but there was times in the uh, the uh, earlier in that in the eighties. I would go to here's the road stories, but on Memphis on Monday night, um, I, w- I would go to the matches. Then I would ride with somebody or Eddie Marlin. I'd stay at his house on Monday nights. Then I would go to Louisville with Jarrett and Tojo, and then I would come back to Nashville on Tuesday night. And so Jarrett would book a lot in the car, and so. We we I'd just be a part of the conversation. Then I'd stay at his house on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights, and his office was in his house. So I would uh, uh, wouldn't really book in meetings, but uh, just book and talk, you know. And so uh, I was uh, was part of that. And the longer, the more often I was in the meeting, the more you know I contributed. So it just went from that. And I remember one time, the first time I ever laid out a road of TV. We were going to Louisville, and he said, I'm sleepy. He said, but I got work to do. He said, turned to me and uh, said, uh, handed me a pad and a uh, pencil, and he said, book a Memphis card and lay out a TV, and when I woke up, wake up, go over it with me. And so uh, he didn't change anything on the card, but he, he changed a couple of things on the TV and told me why, and then from that point uh, – uh, forward, just involved into what it later became. That is great, and it's quite a learning, you know, history to be under a guy like that and learn from him and learn the booking and, uh, from him, which is cool. But what's the best lesson you think you learned from him? Well, it kind of goes always back to the uh, believability of factor. And uh, if you had an idea and you gave him an idea, uh, and there was holes in the story. He wanted to know ways to fill those holes up. But just the overall thing, he was organized, um, very much more organized uh, than uh, than Lawler. Lawler would lay out the event. It was successful. Jerry Lawler is underestimated as a creative guy, and and the actual big, best money run the Memphis Territory 
ever had or was 1983 in which Lawler booked the whole year. But Jarrett, 20 years before, laid the foundation, got Lawler over. Uh, but still, there's a lot of creative people here. But Jarrett's work ethic was uh, great, attention to detail, and uh, and the attention to protecting the business. You know, it was all all critical. And you kind of mentioned a little bit that even before Jerry Lawler got so big and you became the king of Memphis, that you were around and you were with Jerry. But what was it like seeing the development of not only Jerry Lawler, but him becoming the king and then basically becoming the ruler of Memphis wrestling? Well, you know, at that point, I was, when uh, I think 72, end of 72, started 73, I was born in 61. So I was young at that point. And, uh, this territory was always known for big hill tag teams that would just basically beat you up uh, and uh, didn't sell a lot, not a lot of big bumps. But they drew money, the Von Bronners, the interns, but it was one after another after another. Then Jerry Lawler and um, Jim White was put together, both smaller guys. They'd work with Fargo uh, and uh, Jarrett, Tojo, Eddie Marlin, Tommy Gilbert, whoever. And they were the buff tanking heels, fly all over, plus smaller on the microphone, even at an early age, was unreal. I mean, nobody had seen anything like it before. He was great from from the uh, get-go. And um, the Lawler and White as a team uh, was, a, was a heck of a run. They grew big sellout business, that record uh, business that wasn't uh, top until the end of 74, uh, started 75 when, uh, when Lawler and, uh, Fargo had this amazing run, which I think would be the, the best 12 week period at this ever attendance wise in this company. And it was Fargo Lawler. It was just, uh, amazing. And then after that run, they started the, the road uh, to the world title program that lasted almost 30 years. Uh, that Lawler would uh, face, they'd bring in everybody from the Funk to the Sheik to Bobo Brazil, you name them, they pretty much brought them in. And uh, Lawler is just extremely, extremely talented, both as a heel, as a baby uh, face. And it wasn't like he was the only one, one uh, here. Bill Dundee, uh, uh, at this point now, I think he's been here 41 years and um, I'm with him almost every day now, and almost everybody everywhere we go, um, it's it's just the memories of, of the people are so strong and etched in the people's uh, lives, kind of. And so, so but the the Lawler the Lawler amazing first uh, run, the whole thing is it was just tremendous, tremendous, and to stay in one place for stay so, so long and stay over and draw money and still be able to make a living out of the wrestling business today is I have gone down saying this, and so have a lot of people. Jerry Lawler's the best wrestling talent I think there's ever been. And a lot of people would definitely tend to agree, especially those that are very familiar with his stuff in Memphis. And I can't help but think of all his unbelievable feuds. I mean, you just mentioned, obviously, the Funks. Bubba Brazil, but there's so many other amazing feuds that he had. 
and you mentioned Bill Dundee. What was the, you know, the backstory behind those two? Because we talked to Bill, and he said that, you know, they, they didn't get along behind the scenes, but as soon as they got in the ring together, their chemistry was undeniable. And it, and I'll clarify that. it's I've never in my life, when I've known them both over 40 years, I've never seen them have an argument, ever, ever, not not one uh, time. However, they were opposite personalities, total opposite people. They didn't travel together. They didn't hang out together at the house, houses, the, that uh, sort of thing. They were just different people um, entire, entirely. But as far as respect for each uh, other, it was uh, it was tremendous, and uh, in that Memphis Heat movie, you always said, I don't think, think anything that me and Dundee's ever done, whether it's tag teaming or feuding or wrestling or whatever, has ever not worked. It's always uh, worked, and it, it just started in in 77. Uh, Lawler was the top heel, and Lawler had been wrestling Bob Armstrong and Robert Fuller and Ron Fuller and Fuller, and, and so... He had a uh, group of people uh, in his little army, and that bad Leroy Brown was one. So Dundee went went through uh, Leroy Brown with Waller doing all the uh, promos for Leroy, and the, then they they got in this program and Law Dundee beat him, and then Waller would put up his Cadillac, and Dundee would beat him, and Waller would put up his hair, hair, and then Waller would beat him, and this was the the, the feud from the get-go, the very first time they had the extended run, they had many later, but it ended uh, months later with um, hair uh, versus Dundee's wife Beverly's hair, and that never been done anywhere, you know. And that Memphis was famous for for that. Memphis was famous for doing goofy stipulations. Wild stipulations, but the people believed in them, and it worked. Such crazy stuff happened in Memphis, but very cool, very innovative, very ahead of its time, and obviously the dundee Lawler feud exemplifies that completely. But then you think of another crazy thing they did, and obviously the early 80s versus Lawler, and they bring Kaufman, and obviously Jimmy Hart's involved, and uh, obviously Bob Zamuda, who we talked to, he's involved as well there. But what was it with that feud? Did you think that that would work at first, having a Hollywood guy like Kaufman come in and feud with Lawler? Because that is just one of the most memorable feuds of all time. For one of, um, for, yeah, to answer that question, absolutely, because uh, it was different. It was with the mainstream star that TV show Taxi was hot at the time, and and I, and he, uh, Andy just knew how to heal. Uh, and it was different, and it was good. And I keep bringing up Memphis Heat, but I 100% uh, agree with this statement that Jerry Garrett says in uh, in that uh, Memphis State in Memphis Heat uh, movie is that sometimes we feel that the Andy uh, Kaufman things defines the success of this territory. That's what people think of. And in reality, uh, 
there was just so much more to it for so long of a period of times and things that even drew on a consistent uh, level uh, bigger. And uh, Jerry Jarrett said in the movie, sometimes he's highly, uh, and in his mind, when he talks about the most memorable stuff, that wouldn't be at the top of the list. And quite frankly, even though it got more mainstream uh, coverage than anything we ever did, we get that. But that mainstream coverage didn't uh, really put, it was great, but it didn't put money in in anybody's pocket uh, here. But, uh, you know, I I think that's a point that we have to remember a lot. As good as it was, there's a lot more things, a lot of us that was here uh, all the time. Now, Lawler would definitely say the Kaufman thing because the movie, whole different story for Lawler. But if you ask Bill Dundee, if you ask... Uh, Jerry Jarrett, if you ask uh, me, probably if you ask Jim Cornette, I doubt if it would make the top ten list, not to take anything away from it. Oh, wow. And it's funny because Jerry Lawler himself, I mean, obviously Memphis is so much great things, but focusing on Lawler here, he had so many other tremendous views. Obviously, that one is very memorable. But one that really sticks out to me that is my favorite feud, and I'm sure everyone has their own Terry Lawler's favorite feud, but maybe you can tell me yours as well, but my favorite would be his feud with Austin Idol. It just seemed like the perfect mix of Austin Idol who can talk, he can wrestle, he's got that bodybuilder look, and you know, and he talked to talk and walked to walk. What do you think about that feud with Austin Idol? Oh, it, was, it has box office to uh, back that up. Absolutely. Uh, tremendous uh, money. Idol uh, was great. The first time they did the feud was in 78. Didn't draw that great. But then every time after that it did. Uh, so it would be uh, tough. I would have to say that my favorite would be in the, uh, how long it lasted would be the Lawler-Dundee feud. But but I, I think uh, Lawler-Fargo and I think uh, Lawler and Valiant uh, did tremendous stuff together. I mean, just absolutely tremendous. And Lawler and Joe Lazuke and John Louis, unbelievable. I mean, just unbelievable. It's, it's hard to to uh, rank them uh, at the what what is good. One of the things that come to my mind, uh, and it would be a tag team thing, and it was one of the first. Like I said, Memphis was so. Uh, crazy it was the time on memphis tv and i remember I, I think i was in the fifth or sixth grade and we were in school on a saturday to make up a snow day so we in lunchtime we conned the teacher into letting us turn the wrestling show on the girls weren't happy about it but all the guys double teamed <laughs> over the teacher and they did the angle where it was supposed to be fargo and jerry jared but lawler had had no show so it's going to be jim white and uh, his partner and his manager, Jim uh, Jim White and Sam Bass, is who it was going to be as a substitute match. But Lawler dressed up as a woman and went to get Jerry Jarrett's autograph. And now you've seen that thing done a hundred times, just like you've seen the two bowl concession stand done a hundred times. But this was the first time that it had ever been done. And then as a 10-year-old kid, eight, however old you are in uh, fifth or sixth grade, you know, to see that, that even the girls and the teachers were horrified by it. You know, Jerry was bleeding bad, and it was uh, crazy. So, man, I could talk to you all day 
uh, about uh, stuff uh, Waller, the Angles Waller did. He did a, he was so good at drawing houses on with people that you think how did he, he draw eleven thousand people uh, with this guy? He did it with Ricky Gibson, Robert Gibson of the Rock and Rose Brother. I mean, uh, tremendous. And then a guy named Don Anderson, which I'm sure you've never heard of. Don came in from Portland, and Lawler put him over on TV on Monday night. Sold out the college. See him, Paul Orndorff in 77, first really territory that he'd been pushed. Same deal. Uh, Lawler put him over on TV, and they got a big run on him. Crazy stuff he did with Rocky Johnson. It's just, uh, you can really, we could go on and on and on because there's 40 years worth of stuff. So true and so amazing his work at Memphis and so many great views and I just was thinking uh, because how unpredictable and crazy Memphis was I remember the watching the 1987 the feud of the year it was uh, obviously Tommy Rich was involved as well and with Austin Idol and Lawler and then Lawler actually loses that cage match and then they're shaving his head what was that like because we talked to Austin Idol he said that was absolutely crazy in Memphis because, you know, people wanted to kill him and Heyman and Tommy Rich. If you watch uh, that uh, thing back, I remember that whole process. Jerry wanted to build a new uh, cage, so uh, so a lot of us built it out of the uh, farm, and it was the first time uh, that uh, we, we had that particular cage. It was the first time we planted somebody underneath uh, the ring, and um, at that point, Jerry Jarrett was booking, and I was working in the Nashville with with uh, with him. I remember that whole three or four day period, and uh, the heat at the end because I was at ringside. And if you watch the video uh, back, you can see me because I walked. I knew it was a bad situation. The people were ready to go. I mean, they were ready to go. They they were ready. Uh, it was a riot type of act atmosphere so you can see I'm around uh, Idol and uh, uh, Tommy and trying to protect got hit with uh, uh, you know cups of ice and and all kinds of stuff but it was a hairy thing but when at the end of the day when that's over you know everybody did their job well and there's nothing more exciting uh, when you get the people to suspend their disbelief to uh, to uh, to go down and um, be able to risk going to jail to help Jerry Lawler. And that's exactly what it is. They're risking going to jail when they believe it enough, they feel they should help. Which is crazy, but then there you go, the suspension of dis- uh, disbelief, the believability factor, which Jerry Jarrett was so big on and Jerry Lawler was is just awesome, and like you said before, you know, so many people went in saying, yeah, I'm not sure, and then by the end of it, everyone is believing that it's true, and I can't help but think of another crazy, crazy, I know I'm skipping around timeline-wise here, but crazy to you with Jerry Lawler was the macho man Randy Savage. What was that feud all like? Because that seemed like it was real at first, and that Randy really, you know, just didn't like the territory and then came in. What was the real story behind that? The real story behind that, there was legitimate heat uh, because they were running around the Lexington area and they had bought tickets to the Lexington Rump Arena. And it was just a crazy uh, 
situation, but I think Randy realized uh, that wasn't doing any favors and he wasn't making the money out of wrestling he could. So um, he called, if memory serves me correct on this, he called uh, Bill Watts, and Bill Watts kind of brokered the peacemaking deal. And uh, you, you never say never in the wrestling business, and they felt uh, that it would draw money. And, again, based on the reality of the the promotional style we had, anything you can give them a big reason. And so the people knew that for years. Uh, that savage knocking Lawler, knocking this company, and so it was. Um, it was completely believable. Randy came in uh, with a, a, a great a- attitude. They were just great talents. That's why it seemed it was uh, uh, be- believable. Uh, and uh, Randy did a great job here. Uh, so th- the matches looked real because both guys were tremendous talents. Now, your role at this time, you know, obviously you were talking about the Macho Man and Jerry Lawler stuff, but what was your role at, at this point, and kind of in, in the meat of the 80s there, and in the height of some of these awesome Jerry Lawler feuds? And um, from 85 on, I was in the office as uh, uh, helping Jarrett or helping Lawler Warren. Uh, and also uh, ringing outs in, uh, in most of the towns. Because I do remember a great incident, and I just watched it on YouTube the other day. It was uh, a little bit of a fireball incident. You were one of the announcers, obviously. Lance Russell's out there as well. And Eddie Gilbert gets you with the old fireball. Obviously, my, it's a little bit down for my time. It's a little bit off. But what was your you know experience on camera with Eddie Gilbert and then taking the fireball? Well, uh, the the fireball is something I re- I, uh, I I regret, and I, it, it may be a funny story to you, may may not. I don't regret the actual fire. I regret something I did the very uh, next day. And that's just a, a deal. I think Jarrett was uh, booking, and I think it was 1987, and uh, uh, he had been fireball. Jerry Jarrett had been fireballed. To, week before I believe Lawler was out of action because of a fireball we were just trying to get it over and um, it's just uh, natural uh, to uh, to do it to me too where I regret the situation is back then uh, and I didn't regret it at all at the uh, time I was living still in Jonesboro Arkansas my hometown so the the next uh, day was uh, Sunday uh, so uh, go to church on Sundays, right? Uh, Arkansas boy, that's what we did. But I was also a wrestling guy, and I was just burned on TV. So I put full makeup on or bandaged myself up and and had the stuff all over me. And I went to church selling the fireball in church. Uh, and I had, uh, you know, elders of the church coming up. They'd watch the show. And so well, I say I regret that I really don't because I wouldn't have wanted to smarten up one soul. But back in the day, you you didn't have had the elders, my preacher, everybody checking on me. And then if I wouldn't have, I, I should have just not gone to church that day 
at all than when you do that. Yeah, it's your mother, your grandmother, that's the problem. But anyway, I should not have gone to church. I kind of regret going to church that that day, but I darn sure wasn't going to expose the business by going anywhere without um, the makeup on. Very old school and, and you know very cool and very smart of you. You, know, you don't want to expose the business. And obviously, later on in wrestling, we have totally abandoned all that, and you kind of miss those days for sure. But you know, speaking of some crazy incidents, I mean, obviously the the Eddie Gilbert fireball incident obviously was scripted, but a little bit of an off-screen, not scripted incident. We were talking about Macho Man before. We talked about Dow Bill Dundee. What is the real story behind that infamous parking lot brawl with them where a gun came into play? Some wrestling fan gave uh, Bill wrestling tights that uh, that said Macho uh, Man on it. That made Randy mad. He was still uh, uh, in opposition. Probably back in the day on drugs, I would suspect. I would strongly suspect, and uh, so he was mad, and he just showed up at the uh, gym and made sure that he had his dad with him, his brother, and Thunderbolt Patterson, five or six guys, and Dundee came out and was going to get his car and uh, just savage, just freaking nailed him. The story, and they, uh, he didn't, uh, he didn't drop Dundee. Dundee stayed. Stayed up, so they tussled a little bit, and Dundee thought, as he tells the story, he said, if I can get to that trunk, uh, I'll restore order quick. Because back then, we all carried guns um, and uh, had to almost at the time. So Dundee got the gu- uh, gun, Randy jumped on his back, and Dundee pulled that gun up in uh, Angelo, uh, Angelo's uh, face and uh, uh Savage said, fight's over, fight's over, fight's over, and then they went to court over that. They charged each other, and then they kind of went Broadway, went to a draw because they both uh, pled out, and so no charges on the the thing. But that goes to tell you, if if you want to draw money, and when Randy Savage came in to work that program is when Bill went to Louisiana uh, to book for Bill Watts. So uh, Dundee was not in the office here, or Dundee – uh, was not on the roster here, wasn't involved at all. He's in Louisiana. So, uh, you know, I think Savage, the deal would have probably not have been brokered if Dundee uh, would have still been here. Hmm. Very interesting. And we're talking about Dundee and obviously Mid-South working for Watts and the history of that goes. It's the most successful time that that territory's ever had and it boomed and those two years were unbelievable with him as the booker. Now, was he a bit of a booking mentor for you as well, besides a guy like Jerry Jarrett? Well, my my uh, main somewhat, but my Dundee Dundee left in uh, in eighty uh, late eighty three, early eighty four. I graduated college in eighty four, so I was just making uh, Memphis. I don't think I was even going to. Uh, TV, and then he had that two-year run, came back here for a year, then went to uh, Crockett, so was in and, and out. So Danny and I, even today, uh, talk philosophy and uh, booking. Uh, but as far as back during that uh, period, it, it was it was more Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler. 
And with Memphis wrestling, it's crazy when you really think about it. So many big names and so many stars that can't come through Memphis wrestling. And it's almost as if if you're going to make it anywhere, if you're going to move on to WWE or, or you know wherever you're going to go, you want to be a big star, you're going to have to make it in Memphis wrestling first. With Hogan coming through, Jesse Ventura, even uh, you know an older statesman like Luthez went through Memphis at one point. I mean, they Nick Fox went through the world. Do you think that about Memphis? Like, man, if anybody really wants to cut their teeth and make it in Memphis, you know, in wrestling, they're going to have to come through Memphis. Well, back in those those days, it seemed like that that's what happened. And, you know, there was other successful territories. I am biased. And, of course, I think this is the greatest territory ever. But, you know, Watt had runs. So did World Class, so did uh, the Carolinas, the WWWF at the time uh, was, uh, at you know, not my favorite style, to be honest uh, with you. But I think if you could get over in Memphis, you could get over anywhere in the world. Because Memphis was a hard town because they'd seen so much. They'd seen everything. They'd seen everything imaginable, every wrestling talent imaginable. Uh, it was just absolutely the the action the fans grew up on, so that made them uh, be tough crit- critics as far as they knew when a guy came in. You know, you had to get it. And one, one of the things Jerry Jarrett did is he brought uh, Steve Borden and uh, and uh, Jim Helwig in as in 85 as the Blade Runners uh, and something else, actually, two different names we had them on, and they became two of the biggest stars ever in the Ultimate Warrior and uh, Sting. But when they were here, they were so green, the people could see through it. I mean, Jerry had to move them out, you know, because they were too green, and it didn't work. And then they went to Watts, and then they went to uh, Warrior went to Texas, and then by the time they got to New York and to uh, the Superstation and Turner, then they were they they were the good, uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was it was uh, tough. We talk about how great the crowd was, but it was great if we gave them something great. If we gave them some phony crap, they wouldn't react, and they'd let you know it by not coming back. Hmm. Great crowd, you know. They're very smart, very ahead of themselves. But, you know, we're talking about fans and stuff, and I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, Jerry Jarrett said it was, and Phil Dundee said that it was as well. But I want to get your take on it since you were there for so long. As far as famous fans showing up, was Elvis Presley a huge fan of Memphis Wrestling, and would he attend the shows? I understand. This backdates me, and maybe even backdates Bill. Bill was probably just referring uh, to... Uh, to stuff that he had heard by uh, 1975 when Bill uh, first got here, you know, I think at that point. And as far as I know, Elvis never attended a Mid-South Coliseum card, as far as I I know. Now, not only did he attend an Ellis Auditorium card, according uh, to the Memphis Heat movie, and I keep saying that, which I usually don't in these interviews. I just watched it Thursday, and so it's, top of the mind awareness hmm. from me that he said that Elvis actually uh, worked the, uh, the in the concession stand at Elvis Auditorium at the wrestling matches uh, in the 50s. Hmm. Crazy. Any other famous, you know, fans 
around, like, you, you know, like uh, any other celebrities popping up loving t- to see their Memphis wrestling? There wasn't a whole lot of celebrities at that point that lived there, or maybe Jerry Lee Lewis from uh, time to time, but everybody back in the day uh, was was on the road making a living, right? All the time, whether it was musicians, singers, wrestlers, whatever, you were on the road six or seven days a week, so there wasn't a lot of uh, time, I, uh, you know, I'm sure if they were home on Saturday mornings, they watched uh, the wrestling show because 75% of the people with televisions on on Saturday morning was watching the wrestling uh, show. But as far as uh, specifics in later years, the country music group, uh, uh, Sawyer Brown, who had a great song, one of a great road song of all time, Gypsies on Pearl. Parade. They got Don and uh, Ron uh, Harris, the Harris twins, involved in uh, wrestling, and and they came to the matches uh, a lot. Bobby Bear was uh, country music singer, Hall of Famer. Was Jerry Jarrett's next door neighbor in Nashville, and you know he did stuff with with us um, all the time. And um, you know it's uh, country music in, in Nashville and. And the wrestlers based out of Nashville back in um, the day, you know, you would see them from time to time. Johnny Cash lived right down the the road from uh, Jerry Jarrett, uh, where Bobby Bear lived next door to him. So, you know, they would uh, they would uh, see each other. I've seen Johnny Cash uh, uh, in uh, the drive-through lane myself um, at Wendy's. Uh, I love Wendy's, by the way, kind of like Cornette, but uh, Wendy's crazy person, but I've seen Johnny Cash in the the line at Wendy's, so yeah, you'd run into guys. You know, you, you mentioned something right at the start, which uh, I wanted to get back to, and it was a perfect time to, uh, to to bring it up now, as you said that basically that the, the hot end of the Memphis territory really ended around 1997, and that's when the USWA folded but if we could just kind of go back to the formation of the USWA and it's uh, teaming with the WWF as a feeder system at the time, um, which I kind of, you know, it's really the time I really uh, remember starting to see it a lot in the magazines as I was starting to grow up. I know John might be in the same boat as me, uh, even though we did grow up in the 80s with, you know, the uh, the, the bloody pictures and all the, the craziness of, of the classic Memphis, the USWA was kind of trying to attempt to be that third big company. Uh, and it definitely had its moments, but what are you, some of your fondest memories of the uh, the early formation of the USWA? Well, actually, that was a time period that I was out of the loop. When it formed, I wasn't around. Um, and then I came back in 93, and toward the end of 93, started booking and, and uh, booked through... January 97, and then the ownership change and all that, I flew too quick, then opened back up Power Pro Wrestling in 98. But anyway, uh, a fond memory in that period is that we had the um, one of the, the high, we were going with a lot of young guys. Jeff Garrett had left, and he had been the, uh, one of the top baby faces for a long time. Lawler was committed to the... Uh, uh, WWE, we would have him most weeks in Memphis and at TV, but would not have him hardly in any of the other towns. And we went with Brian Christopher as the top single baby face, PG-13, uh, 
Doug Gilbert and brought in uh, in '95 of the USWA Smoky Mountain feud, the invasion and promotional war, and that is uh, one of my uh, most uh, favorite uh, periods ever. The very first Memphis Memory Show, March of '94, when we brought Lance Russell back after five years, uh, single event. TV and Coliseum, that's my favorite of all uh, time because that was my baby with a lot on the line and uh, and drew 9,000 uh, people compared to uh, to 800 the week before. Um, then then um, toward the end of the thing when, when we started bringing in WWE guys to work with Lawler and that trade-off was basically they were taking Lawler away from us so they were sending us stuff to help us out and then at the point in 96 they'd send the rock in and different people but we weren't official we were the developmental uh company before they invented that name and before they started paying we would they they paid the rock a salary and we would pay him a payoff and uh but we weren't getting paid uh uh, to do that, he just gave, gave us uh, talent to come in. But he was great, and I knew him since he was a kid, with being Rocky's son, and since he was fourteen. And we weren't able to was upset. I was personally upset because the natural thing, Rocky Johnson's son, blah blah blah. They had a name for him. It was Fleck Cavana, and we couldn't. Um, we were prohibited from uh, using the name of Rocky Johnson. It had to be. Like Cavana, you know, so um, that was a frustrating time because I think we could have got him over better just using history because this territory was always based on history. That's why the memory event did so good, and that's why you could continue to go time after time with Lawler and Dundee or Lawler and Idol or uh, whoever because you had history and it was easy to get it back going. Uh, again, it was uh, so I was upset on the that we couldn't uh, refer to the Rock, like Cavana, as uh, as the uh, the Rock as the yeah, uh, and, uh, the Rock song. Right, and that's uh, that's what's kind of funny is because you know, and I'm going to get back to the Memphis Memory shows in a second, but. With uh, Flex Cavana, okay. a.k.a. You know, Rocky Maivia, a.k.a. The Rock, a.k.a. Dwayne Johnson, you know, that was what they really built him off of was the, the lineage in that you guys are kind of pigeonholed that you couldn't uh, build off, especially a guy like Rocky Johnson who was such a, uh, like you said earlier, a storied uh, feud against Jerry Lawler that you could really kind of run with a guy like uh, Flex Cavana made it a little... Uh, difficult, but do you have any uh, memories of Flex, aka Dwayne, uh, back then? And him, you know, he talks about having eight bucks in his pocket and trying to make a name for himself in wrestling. But do you have any uh, memories of an early uh, age Dwayne Johnson? Well, I have memories of a 14 year old uh, Dwayne Johnson that was just so athletic, and you knew whatever he would do, he would be successful at when he was coming with his dad when he was here in the. Uh, the Flex Cavana uh, days, I just thought we were, he had raw talent, raw talent, and we were used to dealing with raw talent. And that by that point, uh, 
you know, the talent level of the complete roster wasn't anything compared to to oh, what it was in the uh, the past. But he was above, above average, and we could have done something with him. But he was polite and he was nice. And I'll tell you a funny uh, story about it. Uh, him three years ago. I was with a, another job, and I was in Washington D.C. and realized Waller was there. So I called Waller and. Uh, we talked, and he said, come to the matches with me. So went to his hotel, and we rode to the matches to, together. And, and I think this was before the second Rock Cena match, and it was the the Monday Night Raw bef- uh, before uh, WrestleMania. Could have been the first one, but I think it was the second one of their matches. But anyway, Lawler and I was uh, going in and going winding down this uh, hall, and here all of a sudden with come to meet us there's about eight security guys coming and um and the rock was in the middle of the pack and he said hey king the lawler and lawler said hey rock and i nodded at him and he nodded at me and i uh, kept uh, kept walking and because he, it was tight security and then finally we got about 30 feet from each other and rock stopped and said randy I turned around, and he came back, gave me a big uh, hug, and he said, hey, man, you owe me $40. And I thought that last Memphis payoff uh, uh, you gave me was $40 uh, short, and then laughed and hugged me again, and off he went. So that's a funny story. (laughs) After he became the the biggest box office movie star on the planet. That's uh, that's unbelievable, and that's you know it's uh, that's really indicative of the Rock's uh, upbringing in the business. You know he doesn't forget, and that's really uh, cool, especially in a tumultuous night like a WrestleMania to uh, to stop you and uh, and share that. That's really uh, that's really awesome. It really shows that he does uh, it. Really does you know cherish the wrestling memories, especially those early days. But getting back to the Memphis Memory Show, when you look at that card, it's legitimately uh, unreal when you look at it and some of the matches that really stand out. But do you have a favorite match from that card, uh, putting together something that you always wanted to see, you know, on your baby, on your special event? Well, honestly, my highlight of the night was the the Memphis Memory Ceremony with the, the Hall of Fame. Uh, that was tremendous, bringing everybody out, uh, acknowledging everybody, and the reaction of of the people. Um, as far as this terrible save, for I know we had a ten man tag. I knew, no, we had a six man uh, tag. I remember the talent that we had involved. I know we put Waller over in the finals of the. Uh, it was an elimination. We called it the best of Memphis uh, match, but that particular card wasn't about. Uh, the matches. Uh, it was honoring uh, the Sputney Monroe's and the Billy Wicks. Fargo, we couldn't get Fargo for that first one, but this the uh, whole night and the TV before uh, the TV show before uh, that. Jerry Jarrett came in. He was working for Vince at the uh, time, time, and he had told me, he said, I, uh, I, uh, I asked, he said, I asked Eddie how the TV was, and uh, he said uh, said it was the the best Memphis TV he'd ever uh, seen in his life for selling tickets that didn't have an angle one on it. 
you know, not an angle. Um, it was just, or maybe it was a 50-year-old angle. We might have had that, the Billy Wixon, Sputnik, uh, throw. But it was just a, a tremendous thing. It opened up uh, the the door. It gave us momentum, uh, uh, great, great momentum uh, to uh, build on, and it led in uh, to what was uh, to come. And so the, the next... Uh, Three years was the best money-grossing years in the territory in about five years, and and it was kicked off by the, uh, the memory show, and that was my intention, not just to bring the legend in and one off, and they they go to have people experience the product again, and to get Lance Russell to to return weekly, and uh, we uh, we were uh, able to do this. Hey, listen, guys, it's eight o'clock. I'm involved now, me and Bill Dundee, and both involved with a couple of things in around the Memphis area, SG, SG, South's Greatest Wrestling Association, SGWA Wrestling, it's on Facebook. If you like that and we update it with content, I booked like I booked 30 years ago. And with not the, uh, with some, we try to get the best young talent that we can find. And um, and it's uh, booking wise, you say, hey, that's the old Memphis deal. Also, SPWA Championship Wrestling. That's in Raymer, Tennessee. We're in South Haven every Friday night. Raymer every Saturday night. And um, I'm on Facebook uh, personally, and I'm on Twitter at rb at rb hales. Be glad to visit with any of the old Memphis uh, fans. And uh, that's about all. Just I'd like for everybody to check out those. Uh, Facebook pages, John and Chad, if you all would uh, too, because we post the video up on the thing, and it's not the old Memphis you remember, but uh, we do uh, the best we can with what we uh, got, and it's um, it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely love to have you back. Very good. I'd love to come back. You guys have a good time and be jealous of. Of me as I'm in the good old South. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Will yeah. do. Thanks a lot, Randy. Thanks for listening to the two man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.